0: It was remote, it was wild, really quite unforgiving conditions. Uh, you've got the Bering Sea to the north and the Pacific to the south, and the difference in air temperatures means you get a lot of, sort of uh, weather systems forming out that way and rumbling eastwards.
1: Episode 316, four and a half years around the world using human power with Sarah Uten. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville.
2: Hello, friends. Welcome again to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to share our guest with you today. Sarah Uten from the UK is here, and many of you may know what her claim to fame is. What an amazing story she has to share. Back in 2011, she took off on a bid to circumnavigate the planet all human-powered, and she did this with kayak, bicycle, and rowing, and... She learned so much about herself and about the world. She came back, she wrote a book, which we're also going to talk about. The book is called Dare to Do. And she has a Kickstarter campaign right now for a film, a documentary about her journey. And we're really excited to hear all the details. Sarah, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Curtis. Good to be with you today.
2: Oh, yeah. It's exciting for us. This is an amazing story, Sarah. I really don't know where to start. Um... (laughs) <laughs> I guess, let's do this for the listeners so they kind of have a framework. about just give us a couple of bullet points about the trip itself. So just a brief mm-hmm. sketch. Where did you go and how did you get there? And then we'll dive into the details after that.
0: Okay. So I started in 2011 and kayaked to France from London. And then I cycled across Europe and Asia to the far edge of Russia, kayaked and cycled down to Japan. And then from there, I rode across to the Aleutian Islands and from there kayaked the length of the Aleutian chain in Alaskan Peninsula before cycling across the North American continent and then rowing home across the North Atlantic. So all in all, it was four and a half years and it was certainly a, a bit more complex and Full of twists and turns than that little summary suggests.
2: (laughs) Wow. I always love it, Sarah, when someone has done something as huge as this, and they sum it up like that. It's like, well, it went here, then it went there, there, and it took a while, and then we're done.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. It's definitely easier to say than to do.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Almost five years of your life. My goodness. What an amazing, amazing venture. This just is mind-blowing to me. So. Let's rewind just a little bit and find out who Sarah is. So where did you grow up and how did you get started in adventure? I mean, I mean, something had to to make you really want to do this for you to, to venture out and try it.
0: Yeah, sure. I think it's always been in me, that kind of curiosity about the world and what's around me. And growing up, my father was in the Royal Air Force, so we moved around quite a bit, mostly in the UK, a little bit in Europe when I was really young, but being sort of on basis we were able to really just explore what was around us uh, quite freely and I think that sort of freedom and time spent outside as a youngster and certainly then through uh, my sort of high school days the opportunities to join in with expeditions and different clubs like I joined my local kayaking club when I was about 12 or 13. I think that all led to a really solid foundation a sort of an appreciation of uh, what it was to be outside and, and spend time journeying, and, and sort of, and, and a real thirst for it too, a real interest in the biology and the geography of it. Which, you know, over time, I think that that builds, and the more opportunities you have to pursue it, that can lead to some some really cool stuff.
2: What stage of life were you in when you decided to try this, and where did the idea come from?
0: Mm. Well, after high school, I went off to university to study biology. And at that stage, when I first went off, I had an army scholarship deal was that I would get my degree and go back and and join the army but quite early on I mean literally a few weeks into my first term there at university I injured my knee which meant that I couldn't go into the army I wasn't medically fit enough and so it allowed me I suppose this space to consider other options and it was during that time again my sort of second year of university at this stage I think that I first heard about ocean rowing And that led to my first major expedition, uh, which was solo. And that was to row across the Indian Ocean from Australia to Mauritius. Mm. So I did that journey in, in 2009. And it was a journey which really felt like much more than an adventure because I was making the journey in memory of my father, who died very suddenly whilst I was still studying. And it was during that time... So four months out at sea on my own, you know, totally immersed in the rhythms of the the weather and the waves and surrounded by albatrosses and whales and things that it gave me, I think, a couple of things. It gave me the confidence to know that it was a big project, which I was in the process of sort of executing but it wasn't rocket science and so therefore i could apply that to other things and it also gave me the inspiration i suppose to think wow i've i've lived four months out at sea and i'd love to apply that to other oceans and i'd love to meet new people so travel across land and and so it was really It was really those two sort of factors, I suppose, that led to me conceiving of this London to London via the world journey, which when I came back home, I quickly set to sort of making as my goal, I suppose.
2: Wow. London to London. And your plan originally was for this to take between two and three years. It ended up taking almost five years, right? So it was (laughs) a little bit bigger journey than you anticipated.
0: Well, I think with all the naivety of being 24, 25 years old in my planning sort of stages, I, I was, you know, drawing lines across the map and so on. And, I mean, I still think had had certain things gone to plan, it could have fallen within that realm. But equally, I look at that and I just think, wow, that... that it, I mean, it was exhausting for, for it over a four-and-a-half-year period. And I just think to have... If it had worked out, it, it you know would have been similarly so. Um, so the reasons why it it took much longer came mostly due to the Pacific Ocean. So obviously quite a mighty beast. You look at it on any map of the world, and it's it's a lot of sea area. And so the first year of the journey took me out to Japan. I cycled and I kayaked eleven odd thousand miles or so, and I spent the winter sort of resting and recovering and then preparing for what would come in the spring and summer, which was to row across the North Pacific from Japan to Canada. And I packed up my boat, which is a seven meter long craft designed to be, designed to allow me to be totally self-sufficient for my time at sea. So I pack everything on board that I might need. And in terms of listeners sort of visualizing it, it looks a little bit like one of those lifeboats that you see on the side of a cruise ship. So quite sort of capsule-like. And anyway, I set out to sea and all went very well for the first three weeks. And day 28, I was being rescued after a tropical storm had Mm. rolled through. And the boat was so badly damaged that I wouldn't be able to carry on safely. So it was about 36 hours before that when I put in process the, the sort of I put in process a rescue, basically. I requested a rescue a pickup and the Japan Coast Guard arrived a day and a half later and, and brought me back home. Wow. So, yeah, that was that was three of the most terrifying days of my life. You know, no mm. question about that. But even in that period of waiting for rescue, I knew that I wanted to go back to the ocean one day. The problem came in that I had to leave my boat out at sea, and the lovely Coast Guard removed the tracking beacon from my boat, thinking that I might like to keep it. So, I mean, to this day, I've had one sort of notice of a sighting for Gulliver, and he was somewhere off Hawaii about this time last year. So, returning home, I knew I had this need to go back to the ocean, that what had happened was just bad luck. You know, it it wasn't necessarily going to happen again. And I knew that if I could carry on, then the journey still had so many more stories and, and so much more kind of capacity to connect with people and inspire people. And for me, it would bring healing. I had that really strong sense. So coming home, it was really difficult because I thought, well, how does how does that happen if I don't have a boat? And I think even more difficult was the fact that like with many transitions and particularly many sort of traumatic events, I just fell apart afterwards. I mean, sort of psychologically, emotionally, all that trauma from the ocean just sort of spilled out now that I was home and safe. And it took a good few months of of therapy and support and rest and and dealing with it to to get back to a place where I, I would feasibly be able to pull it off again, you know, if I could find a boat. And thankfully, we did find another boat. Uh, the insurance had paid out, which allowed me to, to buy the second-hand boat that happened to be for sale. So after some modifications and, and changes to the boat and, and getting my sort of headspace back together and strength back together, I went back out to Japan the following springtime, ready for another go. So that was, that was the first major delay in the plans, I suppose. And then the second came again later that year on the Pacific So we're talking 2013 by now. And I set out from Japan once again, uh, bound for Canada, I was aiming for sort of Vancouver Island area. And this time about four months into my trip, I was just experiencing a lot of counter currents and a lot of negative wind flow. So uh, headwinds, basically, just weeks and weeks of headwinds, which meant that I I could make no progress towards where I wanted to go. And so my team and I made the decision, and my team, by the way, is back home. I'm speaking to them over the satellite phone. We made the decision that I should row north to the Aleutian Islands, which I'll be honest with you, I didn't even really know where they were before this journey started. And so I landed safely in Adak, one of the Aleutian Islands, after uh, five months at sea. And once again, I flew home. And recovered over the winter, and then flew back in the springtime with my kayaking buddy Justine Kagenvin, and we kayaked the 1,500 miles of the Aleutian chain and Alaskan Peninsula, which would allow me to reconnect with my bike route. So, there are two quite major sort of hiccups in the plan, I suppose. But I look at them now and and certainly with the the alaska one i looked at it at the time with the same sort of attitude and that was one of embracing it and being really grateful for the forced changes because the sort of the the insight and and the stories and and the other sort of things that i gained from it just add so much richness to my life that i think it's it's reflective of one of the lessons of the whole journey which is that idea of, of changes being a really positive thing. And, and even when they might feel difficult at the time, you know, retrospectively, you can just see what you've gained and, and the fact you've maybe been taken to new places, new insights, and so on.
2: Mm. You know, Sarah, we've interviewed a few people who do ocean rowing. And mm-hmm. it seems like the most popular route, if you want to cross an ocean, is to go across the uh, kind of the equatorial Atlantic to cross from europe to the americas and that one i mean no ocean crossing is easy but that one is fairly popular and there have been uh, several people who have done it then there's a lesser route which is from the northern part of north america across the north atlantic to europe now Mm -hmm. you have much worse weather and much colder water and that uh, there have been a few people that have done it but boy that's a tough one I think that you're the first person I've talked to who's managed to make it even most of the way across the Pacific.
0: Yeah, there's certainly not many of us on on that route, especially. Um, There's been literally three boats, I think, three rowing boats have made it from Japan to the North American mainland. And I think uh, I'm the fourth one to have made it to sort of any part of, of North America, because I was obviously out in the Aleutian Islands. But yeah, like you say, it's it's a longer route for one. It is colder waters, more tempestuous sort of seas and weather, and there's there's not the prevailing winds like you get around the equators. You know, you don't have your trade winds. So it is it is a it is a more challenging route and, and ditto the North Atlantic, like you mentioned, for the same reasons. I mean, there's such richness in that too, isn't there? <laughs> there's such richness in all the wildlife that you meet up that way and, and so on. So I'm glad to have done it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you get full credit. I mean, I don't mean to discount it at all because you literally crossed the Pacific. And in a way, someone might say, well, you went the long way because you went all the way north and had to come back down again. So <laughs> um, I think that's, that's right. amazing. Really, really amazing. And I think it's fun, too, that you got to tour the Aleutians. How cool is that?
0: Oh, Definitely. The Aleutians and the Alaskan Peninsula were one of my favorite legs of the whole trip. I think the history of that region is really interesting. The geology, the wildlife, the, the communities that we met along the way. I mean, it's all just full of stories. And and uh, it, was, it was a real privilege to travel through that part of the world. I'd definitely love to return there one day.
2: Mm. Well, for our listeners who are not familiar with the sport of ocean rowing, Let's spend just a couple of minutes kind of putting some parameters around this. You already described the boat, that it looks a lot like a a lifeboat that you might see on a cruise ship. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your boat, I see a picture of it flashing up here on my screen while we're talking. And uh, you had solar power, photovoltaics set up. Uh, Did you have a desalinization unit on there that made fresh water for you?
0: Yes, that's right. So the desalinator essentially squeezes the salt out of seawater and you get fresh water out the other side.
2: And so that depends on the energy from your solar power, right?
0: Mm Mm-hmm, that's right. And that's charging up two sort of 12-volt batteries. And we experience quite a lot of problems with those, actually. I mean, any ocean is going to get cloud cover, on certain days of any patch of ocean and certainly for those those northern routes there was a lot of cloud cover fog mist which meant that on the pacific that second time round on the pacific i really struggled to make enough power and particularly because the the, the water temperatures drop really quite low it means that it takes even more energy to uh, make fresh water and so for the north atlantic route my final row of this journey we did install a wind generator a wind turbine which allowed me to sort of top up the batteries even on um, those sort of foggy days and, and that definitely made a, a big helpful difference mm. because there have been plenty of times before when I've had to either ration my water or I've, you know, had to go onto my emergency rations because the, the batteries have been so low.
2: Wow. Well, and the, the boat that you used or the boats that you used, they're, they're pretty ocean worthy, even though they're very small craft. Were you completely comfortable with that? I know that in the, in the storm there you got a lot of damage, but it sounds like the boat's still floating out there somewhere.
0: Oh, definitely. I wouldn't go to sea in a boat that I didn't think was capable of of looking after me. I have used that boat builder and and his boats for all of my ocean crossings, you know, right back to the Indian. And each time I've, you know, modified things based on experience and so on. And I know that, uh, you know, I've got the best chance of of surviving um, and thriving in them. So mm. yeah, I, I totally trust them, and it would be a fool that that went out to sea in a boat they didn't trust.
2: Yeah, I would I would agree with that certainly.
0: Yeah, but certainly, uh, you know, a, a flip side to that, I suppose, is that you do feel pretty vulnerable and and pretty uh, pretty tiny in the face of of the ocean. And I suppose, I mean, the same would be said if you were in really severe conditions in any size of boat out at sea. You're probably going to feel feel very vulnerable, because I, I think the, the ocean is sort of all-powerful, and mm. uh, man-made things do not always uh, stand up up to that sort of power. Um, so I think no matter how big or small your boat, there are times when, when the ocean is, is going to make you feel very humbled.
2: Oh, no doubt, no doubt. It sounds actually a little bit frightening to me. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time around the oceans, but (laughs) (laughs) the idea of being all alone that far out at sea and not knowing, you know, what might happen, all the best planning in the world, like you said, the oceans, the weather, it, it can dish out the unexpected. And then you're kind of at the mercy of the elements. There's not a lot you can do.
0: Yes, you definitely are. And I'd agree that sometimes it is, it is frightening. Um, certainly, when the conditions become rough to marginal, and particularly, I mean, in, in that Pacific storm, that tropical storm of, of 2012, I was in experiences sorry, I was in weather way beyond what I'd experienced before. And I mean, not many people experience that because your goal. When an ocean, uh, sorry, a tropical storm is is coming is to get out way and any sort of sail or motorboat or powered boat will get out of the way of of those conditions. So, uh, yeah, certainly it was frightening at times.
2: Wow. Fall is the best time to start thinking snow and Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help you get prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. Brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags, and they are ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. You can also rent skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes at Bentgate. What's more, they host free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Stop by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to check out your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear just a little bit more about that storm. Um, People are going to want to know, you know, how big were the waves? What was the wind doing? Did you have a sea anchor? How come, you know, how did you keep from capsizing? Or did you capsize? Mm. (laughs) Tell us that story.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very passive act in a storm like that. You sort of do your preparation beforehand in terms of readying the boat as best you can. So that is things like flooding the ballast tanks and tying things down so as, as little stuff as possible um, has a chance of being ripped away and you, you try and make your cabin as, as safe as possible by doing the same and um, putting food and water in there because you're, you're not going to be able to get up to access anything and I, I literally had to to lie harnessed to my bunk for the best part of those three days oh, wow. and you're just totally at the mercy of of the waves and the waves very quickly build to be a very confused sea state. Um, you know, waves just crashing about in all directions because the system is spinning so fast. So you have a, a change in wind direction before the wave direction can catch up with it. So it, it is chaotic. It's utterly chaotic and and violent. It felt like the boat was being sort of slammed down onto concrete or having sort of a, a wall of concrete slammed into it and. We capsized multiple times, probably 20 in total, sometimes capsizing and then flipping back up the same way or or rolling back around, you know, to be slammed straight into another wave or another capsize and, and so on. It was, yeah, it was not a good time.
2: Oh, that sounds absolutely miserable and frightening. Horribly frightening. Mm-hmm. It's like being in a washing machine. <laughs> Just kidding. Tumbled. Oh,
0: totally. Totally. And I mean, you when you're hanging upside down in your harness and, and the boat's upside down in a capsize, you're sort of looking out through the hatch. And it, it is totally like being in a washing machine because there'll be water coming in through the vents and you can see just this kind of massive foaming white water around the hatch. So yeah, being in a washing machine is a good analogy.
2: Oh, okay. I'm getting too scared. We're going to have to move on. <laughs> <laughs> good, no, I'm happy to that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. I don't think anybody would ever question your decision to say, okay, I need some help with this one. Right. And then to go back out again and to have a second attempt, that had to take a lot of guts. Wow. I can't imagine.
0: Mm. it It felt very natural to me wanting to go back there's a, a, a beautiful line which I often quote when i 'm talking about this it 's a line from a poem by e e Cummings, and the poem talks about uh, these sort of three girls going off to the sea one day to play and and all the things they find. but this final line is For whatever we lose like a you or a me it's always ourselves which we find in the sea and I knew that that it was true for me i knew that i would find healing and and peace with the ocean and i you know i was so glad when when i came through it all i i was happy to find that i hadn't changed my my love of the sea that was still strong and rooted and and sort of wholesome so it took a lot of mental strength and capacity i suppose in terms of getting the project back on track So, you know, I knew that I wanted to go back and my heart was definitely in that. But some of the team had had sort of fallen away after that, you know, it'd been quite traumatic for all of us um, and, and stressful. So I had to sort of rebuild the team, I had to rebuild the finances, I had to get the new boat and get that back up to pace and deal with my mental health crises. So getting all of that back in shape and ready to, to go again. That was a huge, huge effort. Um, And and definitely, you know, in in the same way that the rest of the journey happened, it happened by lots of people coming together to support that, you know, it it definitely wasn't something that I did just by myself.
2: Right. You know, I I know that some of our listeners are right now just asking why, why put yourself (laughs) out that much? Why go that big? Do you know the answer to that question?
0: The root of it is really simple. And that's because I love it. And that, that love is driven by a love of wild places, a love of meeting people, a love of traveling across a landscape or a seascape and, and sort of the immersion that you get from that. And I think that immersion leads you to uh, interesting new perspectives. And it's it's really beautiful. So that's... That's
2: why. Mm. Yeah, oh, I totally get it. I get it. But just amazing story. So let's uh, let's rewind a little bit and unpack the full trip. We talked about the big challenges of the Pacific, but let's talk about let's say the first part of your journey. And you mentioned before we started recording about a friend that you made along the way named Gao that you said kind of mm. epitomized the uh, the reason for this. And so I would really mm-hmm. like to hear that story. But let's. I guess take us there by starting from London though. We have to we have to get mm. a little bit of, of the in between.
0: Okay. So the first sort of major stage of, of the journey really was uh, that Europe Asia traverse. And so starting in London. I'd always wanted to start in London so that friends and family and, and sponsors and school kids from home could come and be a part of the start. So we uh we being my team so sort of the, the team of folks who came together to support me we we got together on April the first two thousand and eleven. And with my kayaking buddy, Justine Kagenman, who's a, a brilliant sea kayaker, you should have her on this podcast sometime. We we kayaked from London down the River Thames, it's about 70 or 80 miles, and then across to France. Um, so that all happened very quickly. That was three days of, of paddling. We sort of paddle with the tide and then sleep on the, um, the, the the sort of the counter flow. And we made it across to France and and then I started cycling. And and so followed the next sort of six months, uh, 10,000 miles of the journey. So traversing Europe through France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Czech Republic, Poland, Ukraine, uh, across Russia, right across the vast sweep of Kazakhstan and and then into China where I met the young man that you, you mentioned there. So I met this young man called Gao quite early on. In China for me I was in the western provinces of of Xinjiang just west of Urumqi and I was in a gas station one day when with my bike parked outside I I noticed this this young guy checking out the bike and, and then he came in and asked me questions and he was full of excitement and enthusiasm and lots of questions and he told me that he wanted to make a bike journey too but he said he didn't know how and that he thought it looked too difficult and I sort of said, oh, no, it's just riding a bike. Anybody could do that. And I, I think anybody could ride a bike across a continent around the world. You know, some of us will stop for more cake than others, but I think anyone can do it. And I said, uh, you've just got to go and have a go. Just get a bike and, and go. Because I think I recognized in him what I recognize in myself sometimes, that idea that the things that we like to do, But the voices which are telling us no, for whatever reason, become too loud. And we end up just not doing it. So I told him that I'd really like to hear about his journey one day. And off I went down the road on my bike. And half an hour after that, he rocked up in his car and told me that he was going to come with me on a bicycle to Beijing. (laughs) Isn't it crazy?
2: That's awesome. So
0: to put it into context... We're in the western province of of China and Beijing is, you know, almost the other side of the country. It's a good 2000 miles away. Mm. And the Gobi Desert lies in between you. It's going to be some quite fierce riding and I've got a pace on. So he's going to have to work to keep up. So uh, it, took, it took a little bit of sort of persuading. I was trying to think of ways I could, could tell him that he shouldn't come. And he was telling me all the reasons why it would be great. You know, Sarah, you'll be the leader and I'll be the translator. And I had this sort of epiphany moment of sort of saying, you've just told him that anyone can do this. And now you're trying to tell him that he can't. You know, what, what are you doing? And so I said, of course, you can come. And he then told me that he didn't have a bike, which I thought was extraordinary. And so I wrote him a shopping list of all the things that I wanted him to go and find or buy or borrow and I said let's meet in two days time and so two days later he rocked up and he would shaved his hair he'd got a a whole cycling outfit he'd got a bike and all the bags and 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 a massive Chinese flag off the back of the bike and uh off we went we ended up cycling for 35 days in the end Uh, we made it to Beijing and over that time he'd sort of evolved from someone who didn't think he could do it, who was too nervous to even have a go, to this young guy who was confident um, in, in sort of how to manage himself on the road. He could push the distance out physically. He was helping other people fix their bikes. And, and before that, he had no idea about fixing bikes. So it was it was really beautiful to see that transformation and to see firsthand how the journey was having a positive impact on people you know albeit that was quite an extreme case but I think I think his story is really powerful because we all have we all have a gow inside of us we all have someone who is sort of teetering around the edges of something new or maybe it's stopping something or, or changing something and I think those voices why we shouldn't have a little bit more volume than they than they ought to so I think Yeah, I think uh, the story of Gao is is a really beautiful one to share with with people.
2: Oh, yeah. And you know what I love about that account? It's not just that he said, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, somehow his own internal strength and and your encouragement got him to the point where he said, I'm going, I'm doing. But what's so Mm -hmm. fascinating about that is that in the end, after he had done the distance for him to look back and, and to be empowered now, to be... I can do this. I have done this. I can help other people do this. It's almost like he found a whole new a whole new person on the inside.
0: Definitely. I mean, I asked him at the end of that. I sort of was filming him and asking some questions and one of them which I asked him was uh can you describe how you feel in three words? And he said, "I am happiness." And I think that's so wonderful. I mean, something so sort of pure and Mm. simple, but but massive as well. You know, we're all striving for happiness, or we often are. And I think the idea of um, what the journey gave him, and certainly after we traveled together, he wrote on my blog, I look to the future and I'm not scared anymore. I think that really summed it up for me, that sense of um, confidence, I suppose, Um, a sense of himself and and of his potential.
2: That was yeah. really cool.
0: And it was, yeah, beautiful to bear witness to that.
2: Well, I have to ask you a similar question that, as to what you asked him. Um, how did this journey of <laughs> yours change you? Can you encapsulate hmm. that in a few words?
0: Well, if if I did it in three words, like I made Gao do, I'd, I'd write humbled, content, and inspired. And if I sort of expand a little bit, I suppose... It, I think it calmed me down in some ways whether that's just the fact I'm a few years older or, or the the essence of the journey I don't know but but definitely humbling um, I was humbled by nature I was humbled by people and, and their generosity you know I was just subject to such warmth and, and kindness from people all around the world oftentimes strangers who you know might not even know really what I was doing or or how it turned out and and perhaps people that I'll never be in touch with again so that was that was really huge and I suppose it it gave me a greater sense sense of myself in terms of my limits and how I can be kind of mindful of of my mental health when it's slipping and and what I can do around that Um, and and just kind of insight I suppose into yeah working with others within a small team and and I suppose overall, it, it gives you a perspective and it just it's crystallizing your values, which, you know, I think that's also an ever changing, an ever changing thing.
2: Yeah. Well, let's kind of fast forward. We've already talked about what it took to get across the Pacific. You know, we could do 10 shows on just that, you know, this, but we're, <laughs> we're trying to get the whole story in here. So you see kayak the Aleutian chain of islands, then what? Mm
0: hmm. So we kayaked the Aleutians and Alaskan Peninsula. That was a 101-day day journey and, and probably one of the toughest as well. It was remote, it was wild, really quite unforgiving conditions. Uh, you've got the Bering Sea to the north and the Pacific to the south, and the difference in air temperatures means you get a lot of, sort of uh, weather systems forming out that way and, and rumbling eastwards. So after the Aleutian leg, I, an Alaskan leg, I then got on the bike and and cycled out through Alaska and and down into Canada, across Canada, and then back into the States um, and and cycled all the way to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And from there, um, so now we're talking spring 2015, I rode the Atlantic. Uh, though once again, that that didn't go to plan because uh, of, of another weather system. So I was... Just over two thirds of the way across when a hurricane, which had been forecast to go inland, to go inshore, then started recurving out towards me. Uh And so I was picked up. Yeah, big uh (laughs) uh-oh. I was picked up ahead of that hurricane so that I would be safe, Uh, which again meant that my boat was left at sea. And unfortunately, again, uh, one of the people picking me up took the tracking beacon off my boat. So I returned home, you know, not knowing what would become of my boat. And various people asked if I'd go back and have another go. But I was quite clear that I felt we'd achieved everything the journey had set out to do. And I was ready to to let go and move on, you know, we'd wanted a big adventure, and for me to come home safely. I mean, those are the two number one goals. And then we'd wanted to inspire people, especially youngsters. We'd done that in, in you know, thousands, tens of thousands of, of youngsters. And then we wanted to raise money for charity. We raised fifty thousand pounds. And so, returning to the UK, we set about completing the final UK leg, which was to cycle from Cornwall, the sort of southwest of England up to oxford and then kayak back down the thames to tower bridge to to finish off and and that happened almost almost this time of year two years ago it was november the 3rd 2015 i passed back under tower bridge for the second time
2: Mm. (laughs) i have to ask two questions the first being Mm. when you first left london and you said here Mm -hmm. i go how did that feel (laughs)
0: Whoa, it felt all sorts of different things, really. There was pride and satisfaction and gratitude for the fact we'd even made it to the start. You know, it had been, uh, that was the culmination of of 18 months of planning and graft and, and belief and support from lots of people. So to be there felt like a triumph. But equally, I felt pretty nervous about what lay ahead. But happily, there's always that sense that, you can have nerves at the start, and that's to be expected, and it's normal. But once you get going, they're probably going to just settle into something more manageable, and and, uh, and that's what happened. But you know, I definitely couldn't have foretold what would happen on the journey. I think that's the essence of adventure, and and probably you, you, you can say that about life as well, can't you? you? You don't know what's going to happen.
2: Now I have to ask the the sister question, which is, <laughs> you just finished coming down the Thames and you're back in London again four and a half years later now how do you feel
0: well probably some quite similar feelings at least in terms of gratitude and satisfaction and, and sort of humility for the fact we made it uh, and and for the fact that that didn't just happen on my own you know so many people were a part of that uh, that was that was huge and I think there was relief as well there was a a relief of wow i'm i'm okay i'm home i'm safe and and kind of pride too, pride that that we'd done it, and you know the journey had had an impact on people, um, a positive impact that was great, but equally there were nerves too about what lay ahead because i've sort of come to learn through my journeying that transitions and and particularly finishes after a big journey one that has changed you and and particularly where there's been you know some quite traumatic events it can be a really difficult re-entry process sort of as you settle and come to terms with it really and I I think that's probably still happening now two years two years later so yeah the day of the day of finishing was surreal and it was emotional and it was intense and it was all sorts of things (laughs)
2: I can't imagine, actually, that after spending so much energy and so much effort and seeing what you saw and experiencing the unbelievable plethora of experiences, um, to be back home again and say, well, now what? (laughs) (laughs) I just... Yeah, it was... That's got to be almost the hardest part of the whole journey.
0: Quite crazy. Well, there are times since, and, and certainly on the day I felt it, I thought, oh, I'd just like to be... Out in my tent somewhere, or out on the ocean. You know, I, I know what to do, and it's quiet, and it's simple, and so on. Um, and, and there are times when I, I sort of wish that I had that simplicity right now. Um, but I think it's, I think the process of coming home really is a, a, a case of applying the ways that you've been changed and and the things that you've learned. It's sort of applying that to how you live now so um, it's yeah, it's kind of making making the spirit of it at least a part of of life, even if you can't
2: act on it all the time so the the experience lives on
0: oh definitely, definitely definitely and and certainly, in terms of um what it you know what it taught me what, what I'm always reminded of when when going away on journeys, that sense of how precious resources are so you're always trying to minimize your impact and, and minimize your resource use and how fleeting things are so trying to be present in in what's going on around you and in being generous to people you know after such generosity from from the world on my today, it's it's made me kind of almost like a kindness evangelist you know I want to I want to do good for people um and and finding more balance in my life it's kind of crystallized for me that I I worked full pelt on that journey before and you know and afterwards it's it's been pretty full on with it as well and certainly during the journey it it took everything out of me and and I sort of just look at wanting to seek more balance in my life now. So a mix of my projects and, and time with family and friends in a way that I don't think I had quite right before.
1: If you haven't already yet, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. We can use all of your help for sure. You can also visit our member deal site at podcast.com and become a member there. That way you can help the Adventure Sports Podcast out as well as get some deals for yourself. Thanks for listening, guys. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180TAC.com.
2: You know, Sarah, I could ask another hundred questions easily. I'm so curious. I want so much more information and details. It's just such a fascinating trip. But we don't have time to get to all of it, so let's make sure we get to what really matters right now. If people do want to learn more about it, then they can go to sarahouten.com, and that's S-A-R-A-H-O-U-T-E-N.com. And uh, so that will get them started on the journey of of chasing down your your adventures which is just amazing but then you also have the book so tell us about the book a little bit
0: that's right so about a year ago we published a book of my journey it's called dare to do and it sort of tells the tale of of what happened what happened how it happened why it happened what that what that did to me so it it is it's sort of unashamedly honest in in the highs and the lows of it all Um, So, yeah, the book is Dare to Do. And we're currently running a crowdfund campaign, a Kickstarter campaign to make the film of the journey. So I filmed throughout my expedition and we're ready to tell that story now in film. So if people are interested in in backing that as well, seeing the film happen or even just seeing what we've done so far, then uh, they can find out details about that on my website, sarahooten.com or Twitter, Sarah Uton. or if you just plug into Kickstarter, London to London via the world, you'll also come up with with that too. And uh, we'd be really grateful for, for anyone's help if they're interested in supporting.
2: Well, Sarah, I went on to Kickstarter and I just searched for your name and it also popped up. So there are multiple ways to find it, oh, but that's perfect. London, the number two London, right? London to London via the world. So the way that Kickstarter works, some crowdfunding campaigns, uh, you get whatever you make. But Kickstarter's Mm -hmm. not like that. It's kind of a a do it or don't, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. It's an all or nothing model. So at the moment, for example, I think we're about uh, 42% funded in pledges. But if we don't hit our target, which falls at the end of this month, 28th of October, if we don't hit our full target by then, then we don't get a penny. And we chose that model a because Kickstarter. Um, my my co-director Jen, she's had a project with them before. She she really liked the way that they worked and, and the support and so on. Um, but also it's I think it's it's really cool because people will see that if they don't back you uh you, you you won't get anything. Whereas on other ones maybe people think, oh well, they still get whatever they make. Anyway, maybe I don't then, you know, my support isn't gonna be crucial in, in making that happen. So uh yeah, we went we went for Kickstarter and we're hopeful that we're going to uh make a big push towards the finish.
2: Well I love it. So a little less than two weeks at the time that we're recording this, Sarah, we're gonna move you up in the schedule so that your show can play in time for people to get the message before uh, the Kickstarter campaign is over on the 28th, but not a lot of time left, so people need to act right away if they want to be a part of this project by supporting what you have doing to get the film together. And people, this is a story worth telling. It really is a story worth oh, telling. We, we just thank caught you. a couple of the highlights on this show, which is about an hour, but there's so much more that needs to be told. And Sarah, what you did and what your team did, What you accomplished is something that the world needs to hear. I really believe that. So I encourage all of our listeners, go to Kickstarter right now before you forget and uh, contribute something. Be a part of this because, like I said, it's a story worth telling. I really want to see this film made.
0: Thank you, Curtis. That's great. And uh, we've had a lot of support so far. We've had, uh, I think, nearly 300 people back it so far and uh, so as we go for that final final week of the campaign we've got 12 days left at the moment um hopefully we'll we'll remind all the the other people who've maybe heard about the project before and, and seen the kickstarter link before that now is the time to do it so yeah we're really grateful for your support thank you
2: oh you bet you bet and of course when you do kickstarter you get little thank you gifts so i see there's some mugs there's some talk about Uh, the book there's some talk about access to the film and other things that people can uh, can get as uh, as they contribute so anyway we thank you for putting that out there i think it's going to be an amazing film and and i'm just going to state positively right now um you guys are going to make it i think you're going to make it but it's going to take everyone pitching in a little bit so
0: definitely very cool i'm glad
2: you're doing it well sarah we've got to somehow encapsulate this massive undertaking of yours, nearly five years of your life, you know. What would be a a main takeaway, a lesson learned that you would like people to hear?
0: Hmm. I think I'm going to say don't be afraid of changing course with a project, a plan, or, or with life, but before you can change course, don't don't be afraid of having a go. Don't ever let the voices win.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I suppose that could be summed up by saying, uh, you know, remember Gao. Remember Gao and everyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that we all have a little Gao in us, don't we? Definitely.
0: Definitely. And that means if we've got the Gao in us that's, you know, where the voices are telling us not to do something, that means we definitely all have the capacity to step out and, and have a go We'll make that change, whatever that is, just like Gow did.
2: I think the hardest part for me, and maybe for a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners, is the, the actual logistics. It's like, mm-hmm. well, am I going to quit my job? You know, or how much time could I get off? How much will mm-hmm. this cost? What kind of a team do I need for the adventure that I have in my mind? You know, and, and mm-hmm. how do I get support for the people that are supporting me? Those, yeah. those logistics must have been really challenging.
0: Yeah, it certainly was, and and I mean, we're talking. I, th- I think my project's probably the the far end of that scale in terms of commitment and support needed, and and so on. But I think everything is is scalable, and I think there's there's versions of whatever it is that you, you want to do that fit in with you know, where your life is now or actually it's considering, well, are you going to make a big life change? One where you quit your job or you, you shift things around such that you can do something for longer or, or that's more involved and so on. But I think the, the important thing to remember, um, or that I kind of like to remember, especially now, sort of with the hindsight of it, is the idea that it's about spirit, not form. So there's, there's ways of adventuring that take very little time almost no money and and no experience and and certainly where experience is involved and, and so on, there's, there's a whole network of people, um, you know, whole community of people right around the world that have, have done some of those adventurous things that, that you might be thinking of doing. So in reaching out to them, connecting up with them, you can, you know, ask, ask questions or or read their resources and and watch the films and, and so on and, and kind of piece it together.
2: I love what you said there. It's about spirit and not form. You know, it's, it Definitely. really is true. The spirit of adventure is, is uh, something that's alive in everyone. I really believe that. And for some people, that adventure can be as simple as walking out the front door and actually walking somewhere. That might be a, yeah, a major undertaking. I,
0: I agree. I agree. I think it is about the way you look at the world. That's it. It's about how you look at the world and how you let that curiosity Sort of sit with you, I suppose. What do you do with it, and 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 where do you let it let it take you? But I agree, it's it can be very simple and, and very local. It can be right right on your doorstep.
2: Well, and what I love about that is that means that we can each size our adventures for what our circumstances in life can handle. But mm-hmm. I think that that is really what I take away from this is that we can't all travel around the world human powered what an amazing opportunity and an amazing you know journey but we can all do what we can do to address that spirit of adventure and i think that it's just so valuable to do that so valuable i have to ask too though i'm really curious did you like rowing paddling or cycling the best?
0: <laughs> I, I don't have a favorite. I really enjoy all of them and, and for different reasons. You know, on a bike you get to fly downhill and meet people and, and you can stop and rest, whereas in a rowing boat you're out there all the time. But, I mean, that in itself is, is a really beautiful thing and, and you're surrounded by, uh, by nature 24-7 for months at a time with very little input from the outside world. And, and then for, for kayaking, I love the way that you thread this journey through land and sea. It's, it's like you're able to dance with both. And, and that's really beautiful and, and interesting from the perspectives that, that it gives you as a, as a way of traveling.
2: Hmm. Well, I love your three words when you said that your journey left you humbled, content, and inspired. And Hmm. I think that anybody that doesn't connect with that might need to do a little bit of soul searching. (laughs) I mean, that's marvelous. (laughs) You know, that's marvelous. Isn't that what people are looking for? Really? It's sorting out what our place is in this world. Content, isn't it? Yeah, that contentment. And then the inspiration is, say, all right, I'm moving on. This This is what my life has been, and I'm moving on. Speaking of inspired to do what? What's next?
0: Huh. Well my my sort of big focus is to finish telling the story so that is making the film which we hope to release about this time next year and then my the sort of the shift of of my activity is going to be towards helping youngsters get outside so i've got various ideas for for projects i want to run and i've got really good links with youth charities as well and and you know the majority of my time is going to focus on getting youngsters outside and, and experiencing nature, experiencing adventure, and particularly for those those young people that don't have that opportunity already, you know, haven't had any access so far to the outdoors.
2: Mm, I love it. Let us know if there's some way that we can help with that, because I, I totally agree with that mission. I think that it makes mm-hmm. such a difference, especially for youth to be able to get out and, and connect with the outdoors, but it's also to find what's inside of them, just like Gao did. You know, mm-hmm. it, it really matters. I think so. It I is
0: transformative, it. isn't it? It
2: is. It's transformative and so positive. And uh, so, yeah, we completely support what you're doing there as well. Well, Sarah, thank okay. you so much for spending this hour of time with us. I wish that we could dive into so much more detail, but that's just more reason for people to go to Kickstarter. And uh, throw a few dollars or pounds or whatever currency you have at this campaign, so that we can get this film done. That way, we can all enjoy so much more of it. And your book—how do they get your book?
0: Uh, the book online, bookshops, my website. Um, again, just just type in my name and books or uh, Dare to Do. Have a look at my website under the bit that says books. Uh, you'll you'll find it all there.
2: Okay, I love it. And Sarah dot that's S A R A H O U T E N, and I like that Outen. That that just I I know it's Uten, but Outen. It makes me think that's what you did. You went out there. You got it done. Yeah, out and about.
0: <laughs> I've heard that one a few times before. <laughs> that's awesome.
2: That's awesome. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: And for all the listeners out there, you know your journey may not be all the way around the world by paddle, by oar, and by bike. But your journey can have adventure, and it will make a difference in your life. So until the next show, remember, get out there and have some fun.
1: Coming up on Thursday's episode, we will, in fact, have Anna McNuff and Faye Shepherd back to talk about their South American bike tour. Until then, get out and have some fun.